You can get consolation from all sorts of falsehoods, but because it's consoling, it doesn't mean it's true. No. There are a lot of very religious scientists around. Science. There is no evidence for any kind of supernatural being of any you kind. You think people should not have a choice of what to do with their body? Anti-murdering the unborn. And I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it, because we need But this. why should I believe? Well, because it's the truth. Welcome to the Science, Faith, and Reasoning podcast. Today I'll be breaking down a progressive Christian video on Bible translations and can we understand what the Bible actually says about certain things, or really about anything. Um, so it's going to be an interesting video. It's a very disturbing video. If you're not familiar with progressive Christianity, um, it's essentially a Christianity that's all about deconstructing your faith, um, deconstructing everything you've ever learned about Christianity, and essentially is really just a guise for the progressive left. Um, you could drop the word Christian, and there really wouldn't be a lot different between a progressive and a progressive Christian. Um, they pretty much align on every issue, because progressive Christianity is not about letting God's Word teach you how to view the world, and you look at the world through the lens of God's Word, Progressive Christianity is the opposite. You bow down and worship culture, and you view the Bible through the lens of our corrupt and sinful culture, which is so bizarre that it's even a thing because you might as well just scrap Christianity altogether if that's what you're going to do. But anyway, before we get into this, just as a little bit of a life update, I have a daughter, and she is seven months old now, and that situation is really a lot of fun. Uh, we are loving it. Little Marley, she has been a complete blast. Uh, we're also re renovating our house, which has been quite the experience. Uh, currently, I'm in the basement. The basement has finally been just about completed. We've got it all wired up and painted and everything. We've got a guest bedroom behind the camera here that we need to finish. Uh, so anyway, that's a little bit about the updates here, but for this video, I when I first watched this video, I sat down and just put my thoughts on paper, and I wrote an article, um, essentially where I compare Colby Martin's view of Scripture to Stephen Anderson's, which is really interesting because they're basically the exact opposites. Colby Martin's view is you can't know anything God's Word says, essentially. He might make it a little bit more nuanced than that, but that's ultimately what he comes down to. And then Stephen Anderson is, uh, when you hear him preach or speak, you basically it seems like he does not believe in the mystery of God. Like, there's nothing about God we don't understand perfectly. And also, Stephen Anderson would be essentially that the King James translation, every word choice in that translation was perfect, which obviously I wouldn't um, agree with that either. So they both have a little bit warped views, but they're complete opposites. So first I want to go to is Colby Martin made an Instagram post, and that's where his video sort of sprung from, and in this Instagram post, here, we'll go to it here, um, he says, because sometimes I see people make the claim that they just believe what God says. So this is him on his post, and it says, and when asked how they know what God says, they say because it's in the Bible. But sweet love, do you not see, can you not understand that your belief is based on your interpretation of what you're reading? This is not the same thing as being based on what God says. The difference here is key emoji. So basically what he's saying is 
what you believe about God's word or God's message is based completely on interpretation. Therefore, what do you like? You don't actually have any beliefs based on God. All your beliefs are just based on your interpretation. And his little post here, the first part of it says, Dear Christian, your beliefs do not come from God. They don't even come from the Bible. <laughs> wow. That's right, Christian. You know how you read the Bible and you try to understand it to the best of your ability, and then you try to apply it to your life? No, that doesn't come from the Bible. That comes from your interpretation of the Bible. And then he says, to be even more precise, they come from influences that shaped you and continue to shape you, such as family, culture, personality. And yes, to some extent, reading ancient literature identified as sacred and inspired. But hear me out. Reading anything, the Bible included, demands that you, the subject, make interpretive decisions about what you're reading, the object. There's no such thing as the unaffected, pure transfers of information from black shapes on a white page to the neuropathways in your brain. You may truly believe that your beliefs come straight from God via his word, but it doesn't work that way. It cannot work that way. Yeah, because according to him, if we can just read the Bible and understand what it says, then everything he says about same-sex marriage and same-sex interactions, polyamory, all these things that he has justified— outside of the context of God's word, um, would be sinful, and he'd have to repent of what he's been teaching people. And he don't want to do that, so let's just reinterpret the Bible through a lens of culture um, and completely jack up our interpretation. What's so ironic about this is actually, so yes, he's saying culture influences your view of Scripture or any ancient literature, but it's the Christians, it's the genuine Christians who are reading God's word and trying to understand what it says, who are trying to set aside our biases. We're trying to say, forget what the culture says about same-sex marriage. What does God's word say? And then we come to conclusions, and then we interpret how to handle the culture. But it's, actually, it's ironic because he's the one who's interpreting the scriptures through the culture in a perverse way in order not to be um, convicting, not to convict people of their sin if they're living in a same-sex relationship or polyamory or whatever it is. Um, so it's ironic. It's actually the progressive Christians who can't understand what God's Word says because they're so clouded from the culture. Um, then he goes on to say, this does not make the words you read inherently lack credibility. But isn't that what you're saying? He says, I'm not saying the translations are doomed for unreliability. I'm just needing you to appreciate that you're reading a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation which isn't true. That's not how it works. And at each step along the way, choices had to be made. Now, in translation, obviously, choices have to be made. We'll get to some of this in a second. And he says these are all interpretive choices. The point to be made here is the need for awareness to the fact that you are not and cannot be reading a pure, unfiltered account of the mind of God. I'm not going to go through the rest of the post because it's just kind of saying the same thing over and over. But basically, this Instagram post uh, got a lot of traffic for him and so he made a YouTube video about it. So anyway, his stance is clear. Now, I see two major problems with his stance on Scripture. Um, one, he's basically saying we can't know what we see or read in God's Word because we're so clouded with you know, our culture, our background, whatever. Um, it actually sounds very similar to, if you've heard anything from Immanuel Kant, uh, the famous agnostic, who basically says you can't understand anything in the world. Like if I were to look at a tree, and this is an example, if you've read the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, they go through this um, in detail. But it, it basically his argument would be, if I look at a tree, 
I don't actually know I'm looking at a tree because my mind is coming up with what a tree looks like. Um, but the problem with this, and this is basically Colby's view of Scripture, is when I read Scripture, my mind is coming up with what the Scripture actually says, regardless of what it actually says. But in reality, the Scripture is molding your mind. Or in reality, when I look at a tree, the tree is molding the neuropathways of my mind to tell me what a tree looks like. And then when multiple people look at that tree, we can all describe it and talk about it in a common language and come to an understanding of what a tree is even definitionally or biologically. So when we see Scripture, it's the Scripture that's molding the mind of the Christian, not the Christian that's molding the words of Scripture. It is the opposite. That's not at all how it works. Um, the second problem I see with Colby's entire view here is if you actually believed this, then what is the point of reading anything in the Bible? If you do not believe we have a pure transference and then pure, we could talk about what we, what we think that means. But if you do not believe that we have at least the transference or the transmission of the message of God throughout time, why would you read the Bible? Why call yourself progressive Christian? Just call yourself a progressive and then bash Christianity as a progressive, which is what they've already been doing for a long time now. I don't see the need to call yourself a Christian if you don't believe we can understand anything God's Word says, that we just completely make up our own interpretations and that there's no validity to it. Um, so now let's go to his video, which is about the post. Uh, we'll start here at about 50 seconds in. point of the post um, was essentially to say that uh, your beliefs, your religious beliefs, they don't come from God. They don't even come from the Bible. They come from your particular interpretation of the Bible. And I went on to talk about how there's no such thing as this unaffected, pure transference of information like from the mind of God directly through this into your mind. People tend to think they can just pick up like an English Bible, they can read it, they can see what they find there and they can just deduce, oh, now I uh, clearly and plainly know what is truth. This is what the Bible says, which means this is what God says. Therefore, I believe this thing because God said it and it's true because it's in the Bible and it's in the Bible because God said it. And so that's the quote I took. If you read my article, that's the quote that I took out for him to talk about. Um, but if you don't believe, you can pick up the Bible and read it and understand it and apply it to your life. You don't believe in Christianity. We do not believe in the same God. That's I do believe in a God that has given us his word. <laughs> okay, I, I wouldn't think that would be that complicated of a, of a view or that controversial of a view. But if you don't believe that you can read any English translation, take your pick, any of the good ones, and understand God's message to man about salvation, about sanctification, about election, about baptism, about any major topic, like you can't understand any of those things, why are you a Christian? Why even read the Bible? And why even read anything for that matter? You know, if you're going to take this massive level of skepticism to everything, can't understand the Bible, can't understand any ancient literature, hey, can I even understand the news? <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm interpreting it through my culture. Maybe I don't really know what an earthquake is. Maybe I don't really know that, you know, an earthquake was in Haiti. I can't understand it. All right, so let's go to another clip here. Uh, so at time 120, he goes through, well, we'll play it. Those of us with maybe some distance from this kind of thinking can, can kind of more easily see how circular the logic is. But, you know, like when you're in it, as I was for so many years. It doesn't feel like circular reasoning. It feels it feels pretty straightforward. You know, God is the 
ultimate source of truth and God wrote the Bible. Therefore, the Bible is the conveyor of ultimate truth. And all we have to do is to read it, read it plainly, read it literally, accept what it says, and voila, we possess truth. So there he talks about it being circular reasoning to believe in the Bible because the Bible says it's God's word. Therefore, I believe in God's word. Therefore, I believe in the Bible. Uh, yeah, it is circular reasoning. I'm not, uh, I'm open to admit that we have faith in God's word um, because God promised that this was his word and his preserved word. So we have faith in it. Now, is it circular, a circle of stupidity? No, it's a circle of faith tied in with lots of evidence. You know, we, we trust that it's God's word because you could talk about prophecy, all these amazing prophecies that have come true. You could talk about how the manuscripts have been preserved, which is miraculous, and the message of God has been preserved. Um, the truth of the text itself, I think the best, somebody asked me, uh, was like, what is the best evidence for Christianity? And I said, the Bible itself. I think if you just read it and the story that's told and the way when Jesus speaks, like, you can't improve. Someone uh, said this. I didn't say this, but I heard this from somebody. I think it was maybe Tim Keller. Basically, like, the way Jesus speaks, no one could rewrite that in a better way. Like, the way Jesus speaks is so beautiful. This could only be coming from God's Son, from God himself. And so anyway, be that as it may, I think that it is circular reasoning, and I'm okay with admitting that. But when you look at the text itself, you look at the history of transmission, you look at prophecy, you look at you know, any area surrounding this text, it's miraculous. And the miracle's there, so it's not like we have a blind faith in nothing. There's lots of good reasons to have faith in God's Word. Um, then at 2.15 through 2.30, he says um, basically that the Bible has been translated so many times, we cannot know what it really means. But it's actually a misconception that we have a translation of a translation of a translation. In some cases, yeah, you know, something was translated into Greek, and then Greek was back translated into English or something like that. But essentially what you have is these were original documents at first. We don't have any of the originals in the New Testament, but these were documents that were written in Greek, and then they were copied and copied and copied, and then they were translated into other languages from that. And sometimes you would have things like in the King James where they didn't know what a Greek word meant in the TR, and then they would look at the Latin manuscript and see what the word was, what the context might have been, why did they translate it that way, and then they translate a word or two from Latin. Um, but it's not like the way they describe it where it's like a translation of a translation of a translation. Like, no, it's not really exactly how it worked. Maybe in some uh, cases, but not by and large. And we have manuscripts very close to the originals that we can look at to compare these things to. Um, at time three to, sorry, I got a lot of things pulled up here. From three to 321, let me pull up what this is. Have some awareness and maybe some humility that lots of time and culture and humanity has passed between the writing of this thing and your reading of it. And for me, this means, among other things, that we shouldn't expect or assume that we are the recipients of this pure, unaffected, unaltered, non-biased thoughts of God. So he's saying we shouldn't assume that we have the thoughts of God, um, that they are not pure, they are affected by culture, by surroundings, by whatever. They are altered, 
and they are biased, I guess, by the people who have made copies. And essentially, if that's your view of Scripture, if you have that low of an opinion of Scripture, that it's adulterated, it's biased, it's just crap, you don't believe in Scripture. You don't believe you can understand Scripture. And when you hear these progressive Christians talk about any topic, especially controversial ones, it's clear they do not care what Scripture says. It's not let me read Scripture and then interpret life, culture through Scripture. It's completely backwards. Um, but what's interesting is that's actually what we do have. We do have an unaltered, a non-biased, an unaffected document. Uh, now, when I say unaffected, I mean the message of God is unaffected. It's consistent. We have it, the earliest manuscripts to the latest manuscripts. The message of God is perfectly consistent, which is the whole point, which is another thing that's ironic about this. He's saying that the message, we're interpreting things wrong. But the message is what has been perfectly preserved from generation to generation, and every generation has been able to understand the gospel of Christ since the transmission of these texts. So I think if, if you know we're honest just about what the data is, which is that we have 5,800 manuscripts, 5,800 plus, we're finding new ones all the time, we're finding fragments that back up what this text has said for a long time. Um, when there is a difference, it's usually something extremely small, and we'll look at some of those. And it doesn't affect the message. Uh, so let's go to 3.30. Let's just keep listening to four minutes. You know, if God sent us an email 2,000 years ago, that thing has gone through myriad security checks and layers of Google Translate and copied and pasted from floppy disks to CD-ROMs to USB drives <laughs> before ever, ever getting to you. So here he brings up the metaphor, and he self-admits that it's a terrible metaphor, but he says, you know, if God sent us an email... And it went through all these different services and checks and blah, 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 and was copied and forwarded and whatever. You know, would we be able to trust what it says? In that case, like, yeah, well, it's a it's digital copies are perfect copies. Um, but that would actually be more sketchy. And another, everything is backwards here, but we're in backwards world. But digital transmission of the Bible would be sketchy because we'd have no way of checking if there were alterations over time or who's in control of these digital scriptures. Like, digital scripture is a scary thing if that's what we just moved to completely. Um, you want the hard copies. You want the hard physical manuscripts to hold whatever text you're using accountable for all of time. And thankfully, that is what we have, which is even better than digital because it's physical. We can read it. We can preserve it. Um, it's historical. It's ancient. Um, it's beautiful. So I, I love the way that God has preserved the text. Um, and he, the way he kind of talks about everything, it's, it's kind of a, a warped view of where we got the Bible. Uh, you know, obviously we don't have the autographs. We don't have the original writings of Paul or Luke or whatever, or Mark. Um, but at one time, those autographs, those original manuscripts were used in a church. Like a pastor was using that original copy at their church. Um, like Peter's church, he would have written, Mark was Peter's assistant, who would have written Peter's gospel, and he would have, they would have used that in their church. And then someone down the street's like, oh, you've got the Peter's view of this? You've got Peter's gospel? And then Mark's like, yeah, you want to copy it? And then they'd copy it, and then they'd send it to another region, and then it would be copied in another location. And what's great about the way Scripture works is because when Scripture was transmitted, no one person was in control of any of it. Um, it was 
copied and then sent to different locations and then copied from those locations and then so on and so forth. So then after 1,500 years, take the Texas Receptus, you could compare that to those earlier copies in the Alexandrian text, or you could look at the Western or Caesarean, and then you would say, okay, 1,500 years, these were transmitted in different locations, copied, and then now we have, we can compare them. Are there significant differences? If God's word was completely corrupted, then there would be major differences. The message would be completely different. We wouldn't be able to defend the Trinity in the early manuscripts, or maybe that was something that developed later. The deity of Christ was, maybe that was something that developed later that's not in the earlier manuscripts, but no. All of the doctrines, the message of God, completely preserved in the earliest manuscripts. And because they spread out so quickly and were copied in different locations, all the more reason to think that what we have in the earlier manuscripts is exactly what the autograph said. Because if it didn't change that much in 1,500 years, why would we think it changed a lot in 150 years between those earliest manuscripts and the composition of the text, or 200 years or whatever it is? Um, so the great thing about having these early manuscripts is you remove the possibility of having the types of mistakes that I think Colby thinks has happened with the text. Um, now, there are differences. You know, if we think of 1 John 5, 7, um, 1 John 5, 7 is a reference to the Trinity that developed over time in the manuscript tradition. And we can we have it well documented. We see where it occurred. It went from marginal notes and was inserted into the text. We know exactly how it got in there. Um, does it belong in there? Probably not, because it's not in any of the earlier manuscripts. Um, so, but anyway, you can look at the evidence and figure out where changes have occurred in the text of Scripture. And they're usually small, and they don't affect doctrine. Like even 1 John 5, 7. We're, you know, we'll just go there right now. Um, so 1 John 5, 7, it says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And the King James, let's see. The King James has a better reference to the Trinity. Um, so King James here says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So it's a clear statement of the Trinity in the King James based on later manuscripts that had that reference that were once in the margins that became inserted into the text. Um, so we know where these changes have occurred. And in the development of the TR, when that was actually um, first in there, you know, the Texas Receptus was developed by a few different people who worked with the Greek text. Erasmus was one of those. And in Erasmus' 1516 edition of the Greek text, um, it did not even contain 1 John 5-7. So he was working with later manuscripts that still didn't even have it. Um, it wasn't in any manuscripts he examined. It was in the Latin Vulgate. But no text was presented until Henry Standish, an enemy of Erasmus, presented ones months later that most scholars believe to be a forgery. Um, so 1 John 5-7 essentially is a reference to the Trinity that doesn't belong there, in my personal opinion. But, you know, to each his own in that case, because that is a highly debated passage. But it's not like we don't have references to the Trinity in other places, like Gospel of John, the entire first chapter, especially John. If you go to John, um, let's see, John chapter 1, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, clear reference to the Trinity. If you go to verse uh, 18, which is interesting because we're talking about you know, these newer translations are based on earlier manuscripts that they didn't have access to when they uh, translated into the King James from later manuscripts. But if you look at verse 18, 
in the NASB, it says, No one has ever seen God, or no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. So in the New Translations, it says, Jesus is the only begotten God. Clear reference to his deity. And even in verse 1, you see a reference, an equation of Jesus to, to God. So the Trinity is still there. You have this slight marginal note that was inserted into the text, you know, 1,100 years later. But the message is exactly the same. Um, another one, Acts 8.37, we'll go to. This is a common one. I've got um, some friends who are King James only. And this is something we've talked about before. Um, but what's interesting about this, in Acts 8.37, in the New Translations, it says, um, some of them have it in brackets, some of them just remove the verse. But it says, um, so they're witnessing to the eunuch, and the eunuch says, uh, what prevents me from being baptized? And... In the newer translations, it skips down to verse 38, and he just orders the chariot to stop, and they go down into the water, and they get baptized. But uh, in the King James and in the newer manuscripts, there was this verse in there that's not in the earlier manuscripts that says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So it gives us a clear reference of you know, a conversation that we hope would have happened <laughs> You know, before the guy got baptized, you should believe with all your heart. You know, you shouldn't get baptized if you don't believe in Christ. So it is, it's a good verse. I agree with the verse. But by all evidence, it actually doesn't belong there. Wherever a verse may have been added in a later manuscript, you find that same idea, that same message, somewhere else in Scripture in the earlier manuscripts. So if you look at Acts 16, um, let's see, we'll start in verse 28. It says, but Paul, this is Acts 16, 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. So I guess this is when they're escaping uh, the prison. They decide not to leave so the guard doesn't kill himself. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So, you can see exactly how this would have happened, how Acts 8.37 would have been added into the text over time. It's because scribes would have, who had already copied Acts would have read through chapter 16, and they would have saw where this conviction point happens, and the person asked what they're supposed to do to be saved. And they would have seen in Acts 16 that it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And when those same scribes would have copied Acts chapter 8, they would have been like, What? Why is that not in there? It just seems to be awkward. So they probably would have made a note on one of their manuscripts in the copies and then sent it off. And then the next person who got that copy with the marginal note saying maybe something's supposed to be here about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then maybe they would have thought that was that marginal note sorry, was part of the text, and then they would have added it in. And then over time it would have just got copied and become the dominant reading in later manuscripts, which is exactly what happened. If you look at the evidence, you can clearly see what happened. Um... So, in other words, all that to say, um, the text, we've seen small phrases be added over time. We've seen things put in places where they don't belong over 2,000 years. But what we don't see is new ideas being introduced into the text. We don't see any messages or doctrines of God being removed or added into the text. 
the message and the doctrine of God has been perfectly preserved, which is clearly what the evidence says, and that's exactly what Colby's arguing against. And another example, um, if you look at the new, the early manuscripts at Luke 4, 4, what the earlier manuscripts say is in the New American Standard, this is the translation of it, it says, And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. But in the King James, which is based on later manuscripts, <clears throat> it says, And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And you see that, and you say, Dang, by every word of God, that's the statement that should be there. But why are you thinking that? Maybe it's because you've read Matthew. And if you look at the earlier manuscripts at Matthew 4.4, 4, it says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So the earlier manuscripts have that same idea, that same message, just in a different place. But it's the same thing. So again, a scribe that would have copied Mark and that also copied Luke would have read that verse in Luke and been like, wait a second, this doesn't match up with Matthew. These are synoptic gospels. They should match up. Then they would have added that little phrase at the end of the sentence. But that's not what Luke wrote. By all data that we have in the earlier manuscripts, that's clearly not what Luke wrote. Was Luke wrong? No. He just didn't write the full quote. So I don't I don't want a text that has been... Um, has where there's been attempts to correlate the synoptic gospels better than they were originally written. I want what the original uh, authors of the Bible actually wrote. But even then, if you take the differences, the message either way is exactly the same. You just might find it in a different place, but it's still there. Um, so then going on with Colby's video here from 4 to 4.30, let's see what he has to say. And then the second factor that I tried to point out is that not only is the Bible itself subject to like filters of multiple translations and interpretations, but you as the reader, me as the reader, we're also impacted by all sorts of things that, uh, that we bring subconsciously to our experiences of reading the Bible. For instance, uh, the kind of family that you grew up in. Uh, that's going to impact how you read and understand the Bible, whether your family went to church or not, what church you went to, um, what part of the world you grew up in. That's going to impact how you read the Bible. The time in history, the era that you, you know, if you were born in 1232 AD, your experience of reading the Bible, which you wouldn't even be able to do unless you were a priest because there wasn't Bibles for you back then. But if you could read a Bible, your experience of reading it is going to be vastly different because of where you live and the time you live than it is here in 2022. I'd say that doesn't affect the way the words are written in the Bible. So when you read a passage about same-sex acts being an abomination to the Lord, um, I don't know how you interpret that differently because you grew up in a house that even had you know, same-sex partners as parents. That doesn't affect what God's Word says. So what happens is people like Colby and other progressive Christians is they don't like what God's Word clearly says, so they reinterpret it or try to argue against its validity or say that God's word's been corrupted like um, Mormons would do. And then they just believe whatever they want to believe anyway. Which, if that's what you're doing, don't be a Christian, okay? Christianity is challenging. It challenges all your beliefs. You know, if you want to just pick the verses you like, then why even read Scripture? You're just going to pick things you already like anyway, and you're not going to be challenged to change your beliefs on things. That's what's amazing about God's word it's the opposite of what Colby says that it is. 
What God's word actually is, is you're reading things constantly that go against your upbringing, that go against your culture, that go against your sin nature, and then you start to change your mind on things. That's how it actually works, and it's beautiful. Um, But this view of Scripture is just the complete opposite of how Christians have viewed Scripture for all of history. All of history it's been, how is this going to change the way I view the world? How is this going to change the way I do things? At least genuine Christianity. Um, And he's saying, you bring your background to the text. Yes, you do, but you shouldn't. And we know we shouldn't, and we're fighting that urge. Um, That's why you want to check your hermeneutics. Uh, Let's go to another part. Let's see. He's kind of saying a lot of the same things over and over. But if you go to 640-7, and I'll post the link to his video as well. Here's what he says. So in summary, the Bible is not a... A pure, sterile, unaffected object, and you are not just an abstract, objective, unbiased subject. And so all of this, as I see it, provides more than enough reason to conclude that uh, when you read something in the Bible, and when you attempt to formulate a belief from that, you are most certainly, you are forming that belief from a particular interpretation of the passage. You are not an abstract, objective, unbiased subject. That is true. We are all super biased in different ways. But the Bible is a pure, sterile, unaffected object in a sense, in the sense of the message of God and the doctrine of God has been preserved in the manuscript tradition for 2,000 years. So that's clear. Now, when we translate those words, are there better or worse ways to translate it? Sure. That's why when you see in certain translations, you see things that don't make sense. How do we know it doesn't make sense? We compare it to the original manuscripts in God's preserved word. Um, And then he says, when you read something in the Bible and attempt to formulate a belief from it, you are forming that belief off of a particular interpretation of that passage. That's why you want to have hermeneutics. You want to look at the original context. Who wrote this passage? When was it written? What is the language being used? To try to come to the closest interpretation of the passage that can be made to the original way that that text or the interpretation that it was meant to be given or to have from the original readers of who the text was written for. And I think with those methods of hermeneutics or just reading it in context, you come to very consistent conclusions unless you're trying to just not take what God's Word clearly says, literally, um, if it's written in a literal sense, then otherwise you're just not trying to do that. And I think that if people did, they would have a much more consistent interpretations. Um, so let's see. So then he talks about his Instagram post here. So that's my not so brief summary of the post from the other day that uh, for the most part, uh, lots of people really resonated with and really appreciated. And that was really fun to see how much that uh, that really sort of spoke the the the, the the language of many people's faith and heart and sort of how they've been thinking and feeling. But there was some pushback, which is to be expected, BT dubs. So he says, for the most part, his Instagram post resonated well with people. If that post, a post that says you can't understand God's word and none of your beliefs are based on God's word or his message, then if that's resonating with people, it's not resonating with Christians because that's not what Christians believe. They never have. They never will. Because if you are, that's not Christianity. Um, So that is extremely scary that people liked that Instagram post that I showed you. And then he says, pushback on this was to be expected. It's like, yeah, 
because you're basically saying Christianity is worthless. Uh, so what do you expect Christians to react? How do you expect Christians to react to this? Um, <laughs> it's so interesting. And again, comparing him to Stephen Anderson, at least with Stephen Anderson, Stephen Anderson would read the Bible and try to take it literally and try to understand it um, to the best of his ability. Do I agree with his interpretations? No, uh, probably not on a lot of things. But I do think that's what he's trying to do because he believes it's God's word, which Colby Martin does not. Um, he may say he does, but when your view of Scripture is so little that you think any interpretation you come to is worthless because it's based on your culture or whatever, you can't understand what it clearly says, what are you really doing? You're basically just picking things you like and picking things you don't like. And that's not what Christianity is about. And for the most part, I... I welcome pushback. I want pushback. The last thing that I want is to ever become someone's guru or just become another voice in your life where you accept everything I say as real, true, or good. Like, let's just avoid that. So he basically says, the last thing I want is for you to take what I say as true. <laughs> so why am I listening to you? If you don't want people to take what you say as truth, if you're not proclaiming truths, because he's a relativist, apparently, then why are you speaking? Like, the, the relativism of progressivism makes you want to just just puke. It's so self-defeating on its face that it's worthless. Um, like, if you don't believe in truth and you don't believe in speaking truth, then you might as well just, like, parrot a bunch of meaningless buzzwords from Big Brother, which is essentially what uh, you get with the progressive left. Um, so he goes to four... He calls them four common questions raised by his listeners. Uh, the first one is, are all interpretations the same? What makes for a better interpretation? Yes, I believe that such a thing as objective truth and reality exists. Okay, the answer is yes. However, I am increasingly skeptical <laughs> of not only our capacity to know or to like hold objective truth, but I'm also very suspicious that any one person or one religion or one denomination has managed to figure it all out. So yeah, um, objective truth like it probably exists, okay? But also how can we ever fully truly know when we've got it figured out and how can we know when others do not? Wow. So this is a... <laughs> You might as well be hearing this from an atheist. He says, I believe that objective truth exists. If you didn't, you're, you're not a Christian. Because Christ, God, he is the ultimate objective truth. It undergirds all of our beliefs. It undergirds the fact that we have a world made of laws given by a lawgiver, design given by a designer. Objective truth only exists because God exists. If you didn't believe objective truth exists, you could not believe God exists says, I am increasingly skeptical of not only our capacity to know or to hold objective truth. Why? You're made in the image of God. God gave you a mind, and he calls you to love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And being made in the image of God, we can understand God's truths. Fueled by the Holy Spirit. He says, but I'm also very suspicious that any one person or one religion or one denomination has managed to figure it all out. Um, obviously, no one knows all objective truths that do exist certain scientific phenomenon. There's objective truth undergirding those. No one understands yet. Um, there are things about God, objective truths about God, that even in God's word are presented to us as a mystery. And we can't understand those deeper things yet. 
on this side of heaven. But if you don't believe one religion has at least figured enough of it out, why even be a Christian? Objective truth probably exists, okay, but also how can we ever fully, truly know when we got it figured out, and how can we know when others do not? Well, if we're comparing religions, we can use science and reasoning and logic to compare how these religious texts were developed, where they came came from, were they perversions. Um, you can do that to adjudicate between religions. But it, when he says, how can we ever fully, truly know when we got it figured out? That's the problem. He thinks that you have to fully understand everything before you can actually form a belief on anything, and that's not how life works. You can't fully understand anything, but you can come to an understanding beyond a reasonable doubt of what a text means. Beyond a reasonable doubt, obviously this means this, and there's no reason to doubt that because it's beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to be unreasonably skeptical to come to the views that Colby Martin comes to, especially when it comes to um, God's guidelines for sexual behavior. That is, Those are some of the most obvious and clearly written commands of God when it comes to sexual behavior, and there are no ways to alternatively interpret those, not any legitimate ways, and Christians have interpreted them correctly. We've always known that same-sex acts are an abomination to God. They are a sin. They are unpleasing in God's eyes. They are missing the mark. We've clearly understood that for 2,000 years. And ironically, it's the progressive Christians influenced by our demonic culture of 2022 who have now tried to view Scripture through a demonic culture. Why would you do that? That's the complete opposite of what God calls us to do. One way that an interpretation might be said to be better than another is to talk in terms of which one is closer to the original intent of the author. So he says, he goes through three criteria uh, for saying when an interpretation is better than another. Um, and some of these, I would agree, which one is closer to the original intent of the author? That's a basic hermeneutic, biblical hermeneutic principle. What is the original intent of the author? Okay, great. Yeah, let's try to understand that. Um, so the second one he says, figure out what, if anything, it then means for us to have or to do with us today. So what is the application for us today? And then three, have an awareness for the historical, cultural, and textual context. Sure, the historical context of a command that that is displaying God's view of a behavior as wrong as sinful, it doesn't matter what the context of that is because that behavior is wrong. Uh, the immediate context is this act. This action of same-sex act is the immediate context, and that is a sin. It is missing the mark. This is not God's design. I don't know how you paint that picture any other way. And the context of that would be God's law laying down what he views as right behavior and sinful. Righteousness versus sinful behavior. Um, so obviously, you can have better interpretations than other interpretations, um, and there's going to be different interpretations, but that doesn't mean there's not a correct interpretation that we can understand. Being made in God's image allows us, and being a Christian that's saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, God gives us an ability to understand his word. Otherwise, why is he giving us this? If we can't understand this, if everyone makes it up for themselves, we just believe what we want to believe, why would God have given us this? <laughs> So then he goes on to some other 
questions raised by listeners. Number two, he says, is the Bible only a Greek to English translation? Um, he says, the Bible has been translated so many times, it's hard to understand what it meant originally. Um, that's not true. I mean, it has been translated many times, but it's really been transcribed many times. Translations are coming from those transcriptions. Um, so a lot of them were original language copied into the same original language. That's what these manuscripts are. And then we use those to build translations for different languages. And we can compare in that manuscript tradition to the modern text to see what they actually say. It's not really that simple. You, you can't just dust off a 2,000-year-old piece of uh, papyri, a Greek manuscript, and then just do a direct translation into English and conclude that we're now we're just good to go. Now we've got, like I said, this sort of un, uh, unadultered, unaltered transmission of the mind of God. No. So he says we can't just dust off of a papyri or a manuscript, translate into English, and have God's word. Um, textual criticism, which is the process of comparing variants and manuscripts to come to what the likely original reading is, is a process that involves, yes, more than one manuscript, but you do come to extremely certain conclusions about what the original text said. So it's not like this impossible to understand method. We can't figure out what the original text says. We don't know what God's message is. No, that's not at all how it works. We do know what the message is because we have many manuscripts. And we can find, through looking at many manuscripts, when a certain variations do not correlate with what the message is supposed to be. And the variation is usually extremely, extremely small. And you have different text families. Byzantine texts read differently than Alexandrian or Western or whatever. Um, but you can compare those to figure out what the message is. And that's the whole point, which completely refutes his entire view of Scripture. The whole point is we know what the message is pertaining to every doctrine of God, especially sexual behavior, which is where he kind of goes off the rails. Um, so let's look at this last part, 25... 18, and then we'll kind of get into the conclusions here. And to do that, I'm going to give you an example. So I'm going to use the Greek word uh, sozo, S-O-Z-O. Now, if you go to a Greek dictionary and just look up the meaning of the word sozo, you're going to find a couple ways that it is often translated. And I got that on the screen there. So uh, to, uh, to, to save, to deliver, to protect, to heal, and to be made whole. It's quite a range of meanings. Right. So right off the bat, if you just try and do a a one to one translation Greek to English, um, you're going to still have to make some choices, some interpretive choices. In this passage, do you say saved? Do you say rescued? Do you say healed? Do you say be made whole? OK, so right there, you already have to make a choice. So he's saying because one Greek word could be translated in different ways that that should give us pause, that we should not think that we have this exact right interpretation or meaning transmitted to us. And I guess I would say, then you don't, if that's your view of how the translation process works, that you just, you know, and I think he says, it's not just like picking out of a hat. He understands there is a process to this. Um, but if you don't believe that we have the meaning transmitted to us, then there's no reason to read scripture. 
If you don't believe that message of God is transmitted to us through this translation, then why are you reading Scripture? Uh, we do have the message. And I actually looked up everywhere in the New Testament the Greek word sozo is translated. And in most cases, you can read the context and see clearly when it should be save or when it should be to be made whole. Um, so it's not as ambiguous as he kind of paints the picture there. A lot of times there's not a lot of disagreement about when that word should be translated a certain way. Usually it's pretty unanimous among scholars. They can figure it out through context, and then they can see in other texts outside of the Bible or in other places in the Bible where that word is used, what's the context, and what is probably the meaning based on what they're talking about in that passage. Even when there are differences, it's interesting that you will end up coming to the same meaning. So the, again, the message of God has been preserved from generation to generation, just as God promised it would. Um, and then the fourth one, is it divine preservation? Is there a divine preservation of translation? Um, I do not believe that translation is this divinely inspired process because there are mistakes. I do think the manuscript tradition, the autographs and the copies of the autographs that we have in the manuscript tradition is where the preservation has primarily taken place. Now, the message of God, I do think, has been divinely preserved because his doctrines have been preserved from generation to generation. For 33 minutes, he says something that uh, really blew my mind. Like, what makes you so special? No offense. What makes you so special that God would just bypass all of your circuitry and all of your experience and all of your context and all of the biases that you have and just sort of download undiluted truth into your brains? But then, what? God doesn't do this for me. God doesn't do this for others. So he says, what makes you so special? that you think God would allow you to, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's saying, what makes you so special that you think God would allow you to understand his word? Maybe that's what makes us feel kind of special, is that God gave us grace and saved us and then gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could interpret his word appropriately. Um, <laughs> it's just funny. It's like, I don't know. I, I just don't see where these things are coming from. And, and I guess that's the big issue here. And when, I've done two other videos on Mr. Barton uh, because I just feel like progressive Christianity is something that is gaining traction, unfortunately. I even heard uh, a pastor last Sunday who actually referenced progressive Christianity, somebody that he knew that had fallen away to the whims of it. Um, and it's a, it's a very demonic thing because undergirding all of it is essentially a doubting of the scriptures. It's to say, I can't know anything for sure. And that's not true. You can know many things for sure about God's word. Um, so there's some other things. Let's see. In time 3330 through time 3340, he says there's no logical reason to think you can understand the Bible. There's no logical reason to think you can understand the Bible. Then why read it? Why exist? Why read anything? If I can't understand anything, like, what's the point of anything? And ultimately, that's the goal of this whole movement, is to make people think they can't understand the Bible, which obviously that's completely wrong. We clearly can. That's why we can read it, come to conclusions, apply it to our life. Our life can change. Because they don't want that to happen. 
They want you to de- dilute God's word into whatever culture says. Just uh, God's word clearly says something. I don't care. Let me morph it into a cultural perspective that's appealing to me and then do whatever I want. That's not Christianity. Uh, Tom 36.10, he says, there's no Bible verse that says God's word would be preserved. Um, that's not true. There are Bible verses that say God's word would be preserved, even those translations that are based on earlier manuscripts. Matthew 24.35 in the ESV says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 in the ESV, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, yes, God did promise that his word is inspired and preserved, would be preserved. Now, looking at the evidence of God's word throughout time, has it been preserved? If we look at that data, yeah, the message, the doctrines, completely preserved. So even when you see things that were duplicated in two different places, that message was still in one of those places, and it was still preserved. So no, they have have been preserved. I do believe God has divinely preserved his word in the manuscript tradition. Why did God preserve his word in the manuscript tradition and not give us this one perfect manuscript that had no mistakes? I don't know. I don't know why it was in God's divine sovereign will to preserve his word in 5,800 manuscripts with slight variations between them. I don't know why, but that's what he's done. And we have that to work with, and we can extrapolate out very accurate renderings of what the autographs probably said. We don't have the autographs, we don't have the original copies, but we have many different manuscripts that spread out into different places over hundreds of years, millennia, and then we can compare them, and we can see that it has not been corrupt or lost the it has it has been preserved we can see it has been preserved um and then this is mind-boggling what he says here at time 38 15. i write about this like there's no real good reason to think that what god cares about most is what we believe there's no good reason to think that what god cares about most is what we believe could there be a more anti-Christian sentence written <laughs> in, in the universe? There's no reason to think that what God cares about most is what we believe. If you read scripture, what is he constantly telling us to save ourselves from eternal destruction? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your faith on Christ and you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That if you, what, Mr. Martin, if you believe, believe in his son. To me, actually, uh, there's good reason to think that the most important thing that God thinks about us is that we, is what we believe. That seems to be the most important thing. That if we believe on God, we will be saved. We place our trust in him. This, he, is, he just said the complete antithesis of the entire Bible. Complete antithesis. Even in the Old Testament, right? What, what does it say about Abraham? Abraham believed God, and it was what? Counted to him as righteousness. 
He, this is one of the most mind-boggling things I've ever heard anyone say. Even if you are a progressive Christian and you, <laughs> you don't interpret Scripture for what it said, clearly says, you would think even they could come to an accurate understanding of this, that topic. Clearly what God cares about most is what we believe. Um, now, if you're saying uh, the utmost, like why were we created, obviously for God's glory, but what gives him lots of glory, uh, immense glory, is when we believe on him and place our trust in him for salvation. Wow, wow, wow. All right, so uh, here's another interesting one. Here's a humdinger here at 39. Colby really dropped some truth bombs on us. There are a lot. There are a lot of good reasons to think that God most certainly has not protected or preserved what you might call the original words and the meaning of what we now call the Bible. Like there's a lot of reasons to think that actually clearly hasn't happened. Again, I would point you to the extreme diversity within the last 2000 years of the Christian religion from Greek Orthodox to Russian Orthodox to Roman Catholic to Eastern Orthodox to Lutherans and Presbyterians and the Church of England and Episcopalians and Nazarenes and Baptists and Pentecostals and all the many different variations of non-denomination churches. So here he goes on a little rant, uh, basically saying there's good reason to believe God has not preserved the meaning of his word. Well, if you look at manuscript tradition, he clearly has preserved the message of his word. Now, does every person that's ever existed interpreted God's word perfectly? No, obviously not. But that has nothing to do with the scriptures themselves, which is what this whole discussion is about. His word and message has clearly been preserved just because a group of people that got, you know, that possessed God's word for a certain time period had a distorted view of certain things. That does not mean that God's word has not been preserved. But he says the meaning of God's word, right? Every single Christian that's ever existed has to interpret it exactly the same. Otherwise, we can't understand what it says. Well, maybe people throughout time had a corrupted view of Scripture like you do, Mr. Martin, in which they did not take it for what it clearly says, and they made up their own meanings. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's the few groups of people that were like Mr. Martin in the past that interpreted Scripture through their culture. It's just like with slavery. People used God's word to justify slavery, even though that's clearly not the message of God's word with regards to slavery. People were, they had a culture of slavery and they wanted to use the Bible to justify that act. Um, but people also used scripture to become abolitionists and to argue against slavery. Um, so that just doesn't, doesn't correlate. Okay, then he says at 4025, he says the following. Just look at the way the Bible contradicts itself. You'll see common themes with these types of views about Scripture. Um, we don't know what it means. Meaning hasn't been preserved. Message has not been preserved. Bible contradicts itself. I mean, you might as well be listening to an atheist. I don't know how, why Christian is a part of the progressive Christian statement there. But there are no contradictions in the Bible. And I stand by that. You may think there's a contradiction, but if you actually look at the evidence, there's actually not any contradictions. Um, some of the examples will say, was there two madmen that came approached Jesus, or was it one madman? In the Synoptic Gospels, one says one, one says two. But those are not contradictory claims. One person observed or mentioned that one person came out to speak to Jesus. One person mentioned that there were two there, and one came out to speak to Jesus. 
but it's actually the same. It's two perspectives of the same event. They don't contradict each other. They don't contradict each other. They, um, what do you call that when they, they cor corroborate each other's stories and they fit together better. It actually gives us more reason to believe that what we see is actually true. He has this really twisted view of preservation. And someone asked him um, a question, or someone who had reached out to Colby asked him a question about, you know, someone said this to me, how should I respond? And someone asked this lady, they said, isn't your God big enough to preserve his word across cultures and generations for 2,000 years? That's what someone asked the progressive Christian. Progressive Christian reaches out to Colby, how should I respond? And he said, you should say, isn't your God big enough to not care if finite humans get a few things wrong now and then. What a beautiful statement. Uh, what a beautiful just answer to that question. You know, instead of actually saying, well, actually, if we look at the manuscript tradition, it has been preserved very well. Uh, no, let's just be like, yeah, who cares? God doesn't care. Yeah, sounds about right. So my final thoughts on this whole topic is... Progressive Christianity uses whatever it can to reject convicting truths in God's Word. God's Word is very clear that we are dead in our sins. We are not born children of God. We are born children of wrath. And we inherit salvation through God's grace by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do not recognize that you are a born sinner, that your every move, every thought, none seeks for God, none does good, in your sin, you are completely dead. You're a dead corpse. And it is only by the touch of God, that grace of God, through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will be saved. If you do not believe that you're a sinner, why would you believe in Jesus? You know, if you're not a broken sinner and your every move and thought is wrong, why would you see a need for a Savior? So progressive Christianity is, is ex what it is, is it's loving people to hell. It's telling them they're born a child of God, which they're not. You're born into sin. You're a child of wrath. You're adopted into Christ's family, into God, the family of God. You're adopted in. And what that entails is that you're chosen out of your sin. Um, so it's a, it's a backwards view of Scripture. What the, what he's, every, almost everything he says is completely backwards. Um, it's not that you were born great, and then you just follow God if you want to, but you're great and sa saved in and of yourself. That's not at all how it works. You are wretched. You are filthy rags. You are a broken sinner. Um, and then I guess my final, my final thing would be, I don't know why God has allowed variation in the manuscript tradition. I don't know. Um, but he has. That's what we have. We have these different manuscripts with slightly different readings at certain areas. We have data to show where certain changes have taken place. And then we can come to conclusions about what the most likely reading is. But those are in very few places. The vast, vast majority of the manuscript tradition, the message is, ex I mean, the message of all of it to me is preserved, in my opinion. But the vast majority of textual variation is, is tiny, tiny, tiny places. And you're essentially just splitting hairs over them. And even when you talk about translations, if you look at good translations, um, some of the ones that I believe to be good would be the NASB, ESV, KJB, New King James. And you compare those translations to each other, the message is the same. All right, we've got a few questions I'd like to look at. Um, so this first one says, 
the interpretation of John 858. This is from my Instagram. If you want to ask me a question, um, when I post questions, ask me one. Uh, the first one here is, what is the interpretation of, or just interpretation of John 858? I keep hearing religious people turn to atheist cite this. Well, let's go to John 858 and see what he is talking about. Also, um, if you ask a question, I assume you want to be anonymous, so I never say who it is, unless you say, you know, I'm happy for you to tell people who I am, then in that case, that's fine. All right, so let's start in verse 48. It says, The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Um, so Christ is essentially sort of leading them into his deity here. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too, whom you do, whom do you make yourself out to be? So the Jews are realizing towards the end of this conversation, like Jesus is claiming to be God himself. Jesus answered, if I glorified myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. So that's a pretty bold statement against these Jews here. He says, But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? So Christ was, basically Christ there is referencing his, that he was pre-incarnate. Before he was incarnate in flesh, he was pre-incarnate in the spirit, and Abraham saw it. And says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Um, and the way Jesus says that, what's important there, is when he says, I am, it's not just saying, I pre-existed Abraham. He would say, before Abraham was, I was. That's what he would have said if he was referencing just pre-existing Abraham. But he's saying way more than that. Um, what he's actually saying is, I am God, because God said, I am, when they asked for his name. Uh, my footnote here says, the I am denotes, this is a New American Standard Ryrie Study Bible, which is a great study Bible if you're interested in one. But the uh, footnote here says, the I am denotes absolute eternal existence, not simply existence prior to Abraham. It is a claim to be Yahweh of the Old Testament. The Jews understood the significance of this claim is clear from their reaction so if you look in verse 59, the Jews' immediate reaction to this, if Jesus was just saying, I was before Abraham, it would, it would be a big deal, but it wouldn't be as big of a deal as saying, I am an absolute existence, I am absolute God. Because this is how the Jews react. It says, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They wanted to kill him because he claimed to be God. Um, and that was why they wanted to kill him all along, really is because he, in their minds, was blaspheming by saying that he was God. Um, I got another question here. It says, does the verse that says, love your neighbor, mean other believers are everyone? Um, I think it's your neighbor. I think it is. it means what it says. Who is your neighbor? Right? Who are you around? Who is, 
Who, who do you interact with in a day? That is your neighbor. And those people, we need to love them, love them with the gospel. Um, is there a special love you'll have with an, another, another believer? Yes, because um, you connect on your common salvation. Um, but you still are to call to love everyone because everyone um, is your neighbor. So anyway, that's a really long podcast. Thank you all for listening. Um, please like and subscribe. Comment below if you have any questions. Thanks. Thank you.